Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy Podcast with me, Alison Perry. My guest today is Dr. Pragya Agarwal, an author, academic and a mum of three. Pragya is one of my favourite people to follow on Twitter. She starts important conversations about race, bias, privilege and the wider world. So I am so pleased to have her on the podcast. Back in April, Pragya's book Sway was published and it looks at the science behind unconscious bias. When I read it, I found that she'd written it in a way that made me reflect and analyse my own beliefs rather than make me feel consumed by guilt because I live a privileged life. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely think there's a place for the books that do make you feel guilty because that's an important part of tackling privilege. But Sway is more of a non-judgmental look at why we are biased when it comes to gender, race, even what football team you support. I really enjoyed having an open conversation about bias with Pragya. We also touched on how to talk to kids about racism and how she raises multiracial daughters in the northeast of England. If you want to follow her on Twitter, you can find her at Dr. Pragya Agarwal. And I'll pop a link to her and to her book Sway in the show notes. But without further ado, here's our chat. Warm welcome to you, Pragya. It's so great to have you. So lovely to be here. Thank you for having me, Alison. We've just been chatting, haven't we, about how we've been discussing having you on the podcast for months. <laughs> yeah, quite a while, isn't it? Yes. Um, and with you being based up north and me being down south, it was quite tricky to get us to be in the same place at the same time. But now the uh, the lockdown has kind of forced us into doing things remotely, which means that we can just crack on and have the conversation, which is good. It's so brilliant. <laughs> So I feel like there's at least five podcasts worth of stuff that I want to ask you about. Your mum to a daughter in her early 20s who's mm-hmm. been to Cambridge, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you've, yes. Got, you've got four-year-old twins. Yes. Um, as, an, as an academic, you've written research articles that are used in some of the top courses all over the world. You've done a TED Talk, um, <laughs> which to me is just like massive goal, you know. Um, and you've written Sway. When did you have time to write this book, Sway? <laughs> in amongst all of this other stuff gosh when you say it like that it sounds quite a lot but um 
Yes, I, I've actually done two TEDx talks. And, yes, you have. Yeah, I know you have. I, I do know then, that. Yes. And um, no, I think uh, I really wanted to write this book. And I think it is. It is difficult to find the time. And you just have to, I think, prioritize. So my kitchen and house looks like a mess. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very organized with other things. And I'm constantly panicking about and feeling guilty that I'm not being a great mother. Um, but yeah, I think it's just, I've worked a lot till three or four in the morning. You do actually, because I, I've, I've had um, quite a few DMs from you on Twitter at like 1am and I get them the next morning at like 6am when I wake up with my toddlers and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, she's like burning the candle at both ends. Yeah, I'm not a great early morning person, neither, nobody in our house is. So early mornings are very sluggish and days are usually quite distracted, especially now during lockdown when they're not in nursery or anything. So it's only when they are in bed and they hate going to bed. Um, Around (laughs) nine or 10 after that, I actually sit down and get some time to myself. So often it's like in the early morning hours that I start thinking more seriously. And if I have the energy, then I try and work then so that's why and I'm sorry to bombard you at 1am but you can dm me anytime my phone my phone is on mute it's on silent it's you know so dm me at any time of the day it's not a problem um so unconscious bias Mm -hmm. we're all biased in some way for anyone who might not have given it much thought before can you just explain what unconscious bias is and why as your book talks about why we need to unravel it yeah, I, I think um, this, in simplistically speaking, it's some of those biases that are deep rooted within us, um, but we often don't realize them. We don't acknowledge them. We are not aware of them. We might be aware of them, but we don't want to accept them. And we believe that we don't carry any of these biases. Um, so I always like to give the example of like the explicit bias, for instance, would be if I prefer a certain flavor of ice cream or if I prefer a certain kind of biscuit or cereal and I'm very explicit and I'll always say that and I, I don't mind saying that. But there are certain other kinds of biases which people always like to think they're very fair minded and egalitarian. We always want to believe that we don't want to believe we carry any sexist or racist views or ageist or are prejudiced against anybody. But when we assess other people, when we evaluate some of the information that's coming to us, we often do that without knowing that our biases are informing these decisions about people. So we might think that we're making these decisions quite objectively and neutrally in a space, but they are informed and shaped by some of these biases about how we have these preconceptions of what perhaps an ethnic community might look like or be like or act like. And We carry these kind of preconceptions and they determine so many of our decisions, especially when they make, we make them quite hastily and quite rushed. So those are our implicit biases. And it exists in humans as a survival technique. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so in very, very distant past, um, Evolutionary speaking, we were all trying to survive. We had limited resources. We were competing for the same kind of limited resources. And um, humans were trying to make these very quick decisions about who was part of their group and who was not part of their group. So this kind of primal thing about this tribe mentality of this in-group, out-group mentality and making these very quick decisions based on what a person looked like or acted like was kind of emerging from that. Um, But but 
that doesn't necessarily mean that those things are valid or justifiable now because and we cannot say that they are hardwired within us because even though we want we have this confirmation bias that we want to be with people who are like us and we want to relate to people and we want to find these tribes we can really address them and we can really acknowledge them and we can be aware that these days these decisions have a far greater um impact both short term and long term and so i think yes there is this instinct to do that and if we are aware of that we can address it so it's not like we can say i am biased but it's an evolutionary thing so it's okay yes exactly and i think media has played on that in the past by saying that um for instance yeah it's a hardwired within us and it's it's a primal thing so it, it's okay and i think people justify so many things and i think that's what i wanted to do with the book as well because i i think i saw that it was becoming such a trendy kind of a word it was becoming a buzzword and people were talking about it without really fully understanding it and on the other hand people were critiquing and criticizing this with the by saying oh everything is being accounted to unconscious bias people were using it as an excuse and justification and i think that's what i really wanted to do with the book that show that you, you cannot really just excuse it even though it is there and it you might it might be there um yeah and i think sometimes sexism is justified like that as well by these biological things by saying few people who believe that male and female brains are somehow different and i talk about that in the book as well so yeah science can be used to justify a lot of different wrong notions as well and it's kind of terrifying when you start to really analyze what we might be unconsciously biased about like many of us mm. are walking around with these thoughts mm. um you know you mentioned that this has an impact on society but what kind of what kind of impact does this have I mean we're seeing it now we people are acknowledging and realizing that so many people who didn't think that they had any kind of racial prejudices or racist beliefs actually acknowledging that these things are affecting how people are treated in different spaces so we just saw this whole explosion on twitter about publishing paid me where authors were discussing their advances and we found that there's a huge disparity between black but also non black people of color writers of color and what white authors were getting paid in the kind of same situation same context and yes there are a lots of other things that come into play but there is a very clear kind of disparity and we know that people of color find it very difficult to get published and um so i for instance i just found out posted today about how in 2016 out of 165000 books or so only 100 were written by people of color so there are all these there are all these barriers that you might think okay there is the quality of the work but it can't be this huge disparity so that's just one example but yes i mean like if people say i prefer a certain accent or i prefer uh, i have a bias towards a certain university and i feel like somebody who went to a certain university would be cleverer than others so when they're recruiting or assessing a cv then they're automatically going to be swayed towards that person you know so you find forming these preconceptions of people when i tell people i'm indian or if they hear me on the phone i've got an indian accent they might be making certain judgments about me about from the way i talk or from the way i look and i think those are all kind of affect how we decide things and i've heard you saying before that you even found yourself 
having a reaction to your daughter's having a <laughs> Liverpudlian accent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. I, I'm constantly reflecting on these things. And especially when I was writing the book and just before that as well, I was constantly reflecting on my own biases about some of these things that are shaped by um, by my own upbringing, by what, what I read in the media. And, and there's so many of these things that you hear about which accent which accent is sexier or which accent has certain kind of associations. So, I mean, there is a halo effect and there's a horn effect. When people attribute certain negative qualities to one attribute, like an accent, then it gets transferred to other aspects or other attributes of a particular person as well. So that's a horn effect. So, yes, my twin, we live in, in the Northwest. So when she started, she's now speaking with a very strong Scouse accent. And neither of us have that. Obviously, my husband has a Scottish accent and I have this mishmash of the Indian remnants. And my eldest have this very received pronunciation kind of Queen's English accent because of her education or whatever. And so I was like a bit taken aback and I reacted like, like, oh, please don't pick up this accent. And then I caught myself thinking, why am I saying that? And I really yeah. reflected on how much, how deep accent bias can be. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, but you also in the book, you say that not all biases are bad. Yes. Um, yes, I think I wanted to clarify that bias as a word is just just how we, we prefer or our preferences, that we sway towards certain things. Um, and so for as parents, I for instance, we are biased towards our children. And I think all of us would admit that, that we somehow think the moment they're born that they're the prettiest, the beautiful, cleverest, smartest, funniest people around. And I think that's kind of a whole instinct as well from a parental perspective. And that's okay. I think positive biases are fine as long as it doesn't prejudice or discriminate against somebody who's not part of that group or community. So we have a positive bias towards our football teams or sports teams that we um, support. And, but that can create, we have to be careful, that can create negative biases towards people who are not part of our in-group. And so if we actively discriminate somebody who is not part of this group, who supports another football team, who's not our child, then that becomes problematic. Mm, yeah, no, I can see that. Um, and you also talk about um, biases, how they, they exist to form a sense of identity. So, you know, you're talking about the football team that really ties in with that um, and how there's a tendency to accept the culturally alike and reject the unlike. And I really see that in myself, like gravitating towards being friends with people who mm. share my political views or who even just watch the same trashy TV that I do. <laughs> um, and we all like to feel like we belong in a group. But is that something that we should all strive to stop doing? I think we have to. I think that's OK, because I think that's kind of a comfort zone. And I think that's that's how we form a sense of identity and belonging. And I think we do that quite a lot on social media. We have these tribes and it's all people have been talking about forming let's find our tribe and it gives a sense of safety to everybody it creates this safe space where you can talk about it but the problem becomes when we never step out of these chambers when we never step out of these comfort zone to negotiate anything that's it's uncomfortable that's different that's that's not what our tribe is recommending or talking about, then we're never exposed to anything outside it. And then we, our views become more and more insular and we're kind of in these silos. And we see that a lot in political situations where where people's views become so um, so linear, they, they become 
so insular that they cannot take any other viewpoints on board or understand how other people might be feeling. But also, I think, for instance, if if we only read books that our tribe is recommending, we never we never hear about other books or other authors that can shape our worldview as well. They can bring a different perspective into our lives as well. That can bring a different perspective into how we parent our children or talk to our children about. And we like to believe the, that the world only exists the way we see it, I think. And that becomes problematic. So we have to make an effort, an active effort to step outside these echo chambers where our views are being echoed back at us. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It does feel like social media has exacerbated the issue, like creating these echo chambers. Mm. Um, recently, I've seen people discussing on uh, social media whether it's advisable to follow people who've got views that you do not share mm. or whether you shouldn't do that because actually you are, you know, giving them giving them space, I guess, to mm. air their views. Where do you stand on that? It's a very tricky line. I... I personally think that there is a line there and there's a balance. And I think it's up to every person about how far they want to step outside and how far they know what their views and beliefs and their values and ethos are. So I often mute and block people who are just so far away from where I stand that there is no negotiation, that they would never see my viewpoint that they have racist views, they have sexist views in a way that I can never change them. I can never negotiate with them, that they are toxic to my own space, space, space on social media. And I do that because even though I want to be outside my comfort zone, even though I want to be reading other views and other news items and other media, I know that what my values and beliefs are, where I stand and I do not negotiate on certain values and beliefs. Yeah, that makes sense. But there are certain things like reading books outside what our tribes are recommending, for instance, talking about other authors or talking about other things, which I think can be a really good thing. So I think we just have to make a decision about how far we can go. Um, and as parents, we we do pass on our biases to our children. Mm. Uh, what kind of things will our children be picking up on, even at a young age, that will be informing their biases? 
Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, children are like little sponges. They just pick up everything, even though we don't realize it. Sometimes I use a swear word, not thinking that he's listening to me, but then they'll be saying Not my children. <laughs> yes, Alice. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, we often think that we don't want to expose our children to the ugliness in the society or the dark side or 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 the or anything that, that is uncomfortable. And, and lots of people, Lots of people say to me that why talk about racism to children when when they don't see color? And this happened quite a lot when I was on BBC Women's Hour last year and I got lots of messages saying I'm trying to indoctrinate children or something or making them into victims or villains. But we have to realize that our children are seeing and hearing everything and picking up these social cues from uh, their parents, their carers, their educators, the books, the media... And they're forming a sense of who's part of their group and who's not part of their group. But they're also forming a sense of the hierarchy in society, which ultimately affects how these some of these systemic and structural biases come into play. And we know, we know, and I've talked about it in the book about how children pick up this, these facial cues from skin color, and they make these associations and attributions about which skin color is better or which preferable, and they want to play with only dolls which have blonde hair and blue eyes, or or they think that boys only play with dinosaurs or girls only play with dolls, or boys are better at footballs and girls are not good at maths. And these views start forming from a very young young age, and you have to constantly counter that very actively rather than believing passively that if we just expose our children to books and diverse media, they will be okay. This is something that a lot of us have been talking about since the death of George Floyd mm. and the spotlight that has been shone on systemic racism. Um, you know, talking to our kids about race and it is more than just buying a few books with mm. black and brown characters, isn't it? How how do you suggest that someone listening, you know, I mean, I'm hoping that by now they have raised the issue. Mm. Um but how how would you suggest that that a parent chats to you know that their young children about this? I think it has to be done in an age appropriate manner, and every child is different. So I will never say that by the age of three you should be doing that. By the age of four you should be doing that. Uh, for instance, my children are very sensitive. One of them is obsessed with death at the moment, and she just gets really worried that I'm going to die or leave her or something. So I have to be very cautious about what she sees on media and how she interprets it and how I talk to it and introduce these concepts to her. Um, Some children are more robust. Some children might have already seen it while in the news. Um, So I think it's really important that we talk about these things in a very kind of age appropriate, but also as early as possible, but depending on the context of the child. I think for a lot of us, we were talking, or especially black people or even other Asian families, we had to start, we have to be considering these issues from a very young age for a long time because children face discrimination and bullying in the playground. So I think we don't have a privilege of not talking to our children about it. We haven't had the privilege. But It's a real privilege, isn't it? The fact that we are asking this question, how do we talk to our kids about race, is (laughs) a massive privilege. Yeah, I think, but it's a good question to ask. And I think people find it awkward and uncomfortable sometimes because they don't have the right vocabulary or the right tools to be talking about it or not knowing how to address these questions or not. Or sometimes parents have told me that 
like instance I talked about last year, um, a ch- little child, four-year-old or three-year-old, same age as my children, saw me and said, oh, she's got such brown skin, mummy. And her mother got became really uncomfortable and awkward and shushed her. And I thought that could have been a start of a really nice, good conversation about how people are different biologically or just because they look different. And then that can lead into other conversations around how people from different parts of the world look different and how everybody is still equal, but that has created different power and privilege. And I think the notion of privilege for our children is really important to understand. And I've always said that my children have to understand the privileges they have and what they can do about that privilege and why other people might treat them differently because they perceive them like that, why they might treat other people because they might perceive them like that. And I think I have always believed that I have to be, they have to be actively anti-racist, actively socially uh, active, rather than just saying, okay, they can be against racism or we are not racist. That's, I think they have to be actively anti-racist. That's what I firmly believe in. Mm. Something that you mentioned just there is something that I think is a, it's a real common problem. And it's something that I used to so I I wrongly had the attitude in the past of not talking about skin color mm. to my eldest daughter my two my two youngest ones are too little to yeah. understand more than what Mr Tumble's doing on the on the TV <laughs> but um my eldest when she started school and there was a mix of white black and brown skinned kids in her class I didn't ever reference it and that was like a that was a, an actual conscious decision that I made and I truly mm. believed that not seeing colour was the way to teach her equality mm. and it's only since then so she's been at school uh, for five years now and it's only in those five years that I have learned that that's not that's not the way you teach equality. Yeah I think the important thing for our children to understand that there is difference there is different and that leads to different opportunities different privileges different hierarchies but difference doesn't mean that people are unequal. I think that's what we cannot teach them to ignore differences. We have to teach them to tackle them in a fair and equitable manner. And unless we talk about it, we cannot do that. But in some ways, your approach is is a sensible one because we don't always want to associate somebody with their skin color. So say that brown kid is very good at maths or that that and they start associating that anybody who's brown is supposed to be good at maths or always eat a certain kind of food or always speak in a certain way or they do that because they're brown not because just they they people are different and their skin color doesn't mean that they're going to behave in a stereotypical manner so i think it's important to refer to it and talk about it but in a way and it's a tricky line in a way that they doesn't reinforce stereotypes because I think stereotypes are where biases and prejudices emerge from. And you were born and raised in India. And mm-hmm. am I right in thinking that your husband is white? You mentioned that yeah, he's Scottish. Yeah, he's Scottish, yes. So you're, you're, uh, you're younger girls, you're, you're raising multiracial girls, aren't you? Yes. What challenges does that throw up for you as a parent? Um, yeah, I think it's only, I think since they were born, I started thinking more seriously about how that impacts what values they have and how they see themselves. So they have, a, to a certain extent, they have a privilege because they are white passing. Um, so, and they not, don't see many brown people. I mean, we live in a place where I'm the only brown woman and they don't have any multiracial children in their nursery or staff or uh, anything. So the only brown people they see is me and their eldest sister. 
when they, she's home. So that would shape their worldview. And so I think it becomes so important for me to do this more, even more actively, you know, because I want them to be proud of their Indian side of the heritage, which can get ignored or dismissed. It also means that my husband and I have to be on the same page about how we talk about things, how we are sensitive, how we introduce them to different cultural contexts and social contexts. And I know that children form prejudices and biases because of the fear of unfamiliar. So if they don't see many people who have dark skin color or who have certain kind of hair or certain kind of facial features, they're more likely to be fearful of them. And I know that because when we went to India last year, that was really the first time they went to India. And they they were initially very kind of overwhelmed by it because they hadn't seen so many brown people in one place and people who looked so different. Even on the airport, and I gave this example in the book, we sat next to a Chinese-American, Asian-American family. And my one of my twins was really kind of fearful or kind of very awkward because she didn't know how to react. And that's when children are pick up, picking up these cues from their parents. If they see that their parents are acting in a certain way, they will know that there's it's okay to act in a certain way, which might be biased or prejudiced. So I think that's so important for us as people, parents, to be giving them the message now, I think, for me, that just because people have different skin color doesn't mean that they have something to be feared or uncomfortable around. And I am very active about introducing them to Indian stories and mythology and books and culture. And I think it's really important for them to absorb and assimilate that so that they grow up being very comfortable with that identity and not wondering where they sit between the two cultures. And um, I saw, was it Jane Garvey had said that anyone who thinks they don't need to read your book, <laughs> that means they do need to read your book. Is that, is that, is that, I have probably not got that quote No, quite she right. did. And it was wonderful because she said, if you think that you don't need to read the book, you really need to read the book. And I thought that was just so spot on. But yeah. why would you say, so to someone listening, you know, why should they go out and, and get a copy of Sway? <laughs> um, because it's brilliant. No, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it really is. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's our responsibility to really educate ourselves, you know. It's our responsibility to to make sure that we are doing what we can to create a fairer society as parents for children, but as carers, edu- educators. And what I really wanted to do with this book is to bring the science of unconscious bias, how these biases are formed, but in a kind of calm and collected manner and bring a lot of facts and evidence and research to show and to give people the tools and vocabulary that they can talk about it with other people as well. And they can reflect on their biases in kind of a non-judgmental and a non-preachy way. And I think that was really my main goal because a lot of these books sometimes can be quite angry and it can put people off or make people defensive. And I really wanted to say, I am biased and so are you. And we just have a responsibility to understand how insidious these biases are, not just within ourselves, but also in our technology, also in so many decisions and actions and domains that we don't even know and understand and and that affects how this society works and how we move forward this really affects the power hierarchies we have the individual kind of uh, kind of opportunities people have and i think i really wanted to, want to do that it's not a book to 
to use as a template. I haven't given you a 10 point program to get rid of your unconscious bias. So if you're looking for something like that, this is not the book. I do include about how you can de-bias de it. And I think reading this book is a huge first step of understanding the vocabulary, the terms, and removing that awkwardness around some of these discussions as well. And anybody who tells you they can give you a 10-point program on re getting rid of unconscious bias is a scam. So <laughs> Don't listen to them. Yeah. Um, and I think even though the book isn't specifically about race, because obviously bias yeah. can cover so many different areas, uh, I think that now is a really good time for people to pick this book up and read it because so many of us are analysing our behaviour, realising mm -hmm. that... Um, you know that we have th this this privilege that we are living with, and that we might be guilty of microaggressions towards Black people, people of colour, and it's such a good kind of first step, like you say, to actually understanding the way that our brains work and mm -hmm. how to how to tackle that bias. Yeah, I think. Um, I'm, and as I, as you say, racism isn't the only one, but I do. T I mean, it's one of the biggest things and something that has shaped my life obviously as well um, I, and it's going to likely to shape my children's life as well um, it just today somebody told me on Facebook to go back home and if I don't like it here in Britain why am I still here so you know it's alive and well and kicking but and these kind of microaggressions I think I'm so pleased that people are talking about it because we've been talking about it for quite a while about how Racism isn't just those hate crimes and police brutality and violence that we are seeing. That happens. Yes, that happens. But it's every day those kind of disguised as jokes or banter or just just kind of culture in a place or or those kind of com throwaway comments and seemingly really small com things that people can't even put their finger on. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really really great conversation and like I said at the start I feel like I could just keep going but we we will leave it there thank you so much for joining me Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.